Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. Look, we're looking for a MiG-21. You're unhappy in Iraq. Why don't you come to Israel? If you bring a MiG-21, you will be treated like a hero. You will live a wonderful life in Israel. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies. Sexpionage, part one. Operation Diamond. If you've got guys who are abroad or in the services, they are certainly going to be looking for young women and booze. San Antonio, Texas, 1965. A local watering hole. Tonight, the bar plays host to two foreign guests. The first is a fighter pilot from Iraq. His name is Hamid Dahe. This is his first and final visit to America. And then there's Zainab. Like Hamid, she's from out of town. She's also young, pretty, and interested. A winning combination for the serviceman abroad. She seduces him. She picks him up in a bar, and, you know, obviously they sleep together. And when the time comes for pillow talk, there's only one thing on her mind. She talks to him there about the possibility of defecting. Romantic. Here's the rub. Zainab, real name Jean Pollen, is an operative in the employ of Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency. Hamid is one of a scant few Iraqi pilots with access to a Mikoyan Gurevich MiG-21, a next-gen Soviet fighter plane favored by Israel's enemies in the Middle East. The Israeli government wants that plane. Knowing the MiG's strengths and weaknesses, could give them a crucial air advantage if tensions in the region boil over into war. Zainab would like very much for Hamid to be the man who brings it to them. You can imagine, hey, here's a wild idea. Why don't, you know, <laughs> you fly one to Israel? They'd love one, wouldn't they? And he refuses point blank. You've heard of an offer you can't refuse. This is one of those. But Hamid doesn't know that yet. In a few days' time, thanks to Zainab, He'll never know anything ever again. Welcome to the glamorous and deadly world of honeypots. These are very sophisticated operations, closely monitored with very specific targets in mind. It's fascinating when you think about it, and it's one of the most enduring elements of um, tradecraft. A honeypot is a spy who uses the art of seduction to ensnare a potential asset. It's a word that's closely associated with a variety of vaguely sexist female archetypes. The Black Widow. The Femme Fatale. Bond girls. Need we say more? And of course, Bond himself is no slouch in this department. In reality, the honeypot is an equal opportunities gambit. Throughout the long history of espionage, men have been just as likely as women to go to bed in the name of king and country. 
You're listening to the first instalment in a revealing True Spies anthology about the secret world of seduction. In these episodes, you'll discover that one night of passion can change the course of history, even if it doesn't move the earth. Time to meet your guide. My name's Michael Smith. I was in British military intelligence for nine years. I then became a journalist for 30 years. And now I'm an author. I write books on spies. And my most recent book is Anatomy of a Spy. Michael Smith lives and breathes espionage. But he's led a varied career. When I left the army, I didn't really want to write about... in intelligence at all. I just wanted to be a news reporter um, and do the normal news reporting stuff. Initially, Michael worked for the BBC Monitoring Service, a branch of the British national broadcaster that keeps tabs on world media. Founded during World War II to track German propaganda efforts, the Monitoring Service can be considered one of the world's oldest open-source intelligence groups. And from there, I went to the Telegraph. And at the Telegraph, I was initially on the foreign desk, but then a general news reporter reporting from around the world and war zones. And I reported from the Balkans, from Iraq, Afghanistan. My foreign editor suggested to me at the time in the mid-90s, there wasn't that much stuff out about intelligence and there was certainly anything that appeared in the paper tended to lean towards conspiracy theory. And he said, well, you know all about this stuff. You should be writing about it. And that's how I got into writing books on intelligence. The secret world of spies is, unsurprisingly, a hard nut for a journalist to crack. That's especially true in Britain, where a piece of legislation called the Official Secrets Act allows the government to hand down harsh punishments to those who speak publicly about intelligence work. That said, there has been some slow progress towards greater transparency in the past couple of decades. Michael has been part of that process. When I wrote my first um, history of the British intelligence services, I said to the Foreign Office press office, can you get me someone from MI6 to talk to? And they said, oh, they won't do that. And then they came back to me a couple of days later and said they would like to talk to you. And so they got together a couple of old guys who both of them served in the war in MI6 and in the Cold War. And they were retired, but they sort of tended the services archives rather like, you know, old men sometimes tend an allotment. And they were answering questions for me. And the guy who was talking with them was the chief aide to C, the head of MI6. And those guys, he and his successors, then went on to talk to the media in a more open way. So I think you know, it was an exploration by them of whether it worked talking to the media. Since then, Michael has written in depth about some of the most dangerous, important and intriguing events in the history of espionage. The story of Operation Diamond is one of them. In the late 50s, early 60s, the Egyptians, the Syrians, acquired the 
MiG-21, the latest Soviet fighter aircraft. The MiG-21 was the latest technology. The Israelis were concerned about that technology and its extent, and they didn't really know much about it, and nor did we, so we couldn't help them. We'd seen them, but we had no idea what the internal mechanisms were and and technology was. So they wanted to know how the MiG-21 flew, how it worked, what were its weaknesses, so that they could exploit those in any firefights or confrontations between their Mirage jets and the Egyptian or Syrian MiG-21s. Acquiring a MiG-21 became a top priority for the Mossad. And they have a reputation for getting what they want. Mossad is one of the frontline intelligence agencies. It's smaller, clearly a small country, and much smaller than MI6, certainly smaller than Chinese, Russian and American intelligence services. But it is very, very efficient. That's not to say that they have a 100% success rate. One attempt at securing a MiG in 1962 ended in the capture and execution of three Mossad operatives by Egyptian authorities. A second attempt also failed. Third time's a charm, then. In 1958, a coup in Baghdad brought a pro-Soviet government to power and the Soviets sold the Iraqis the MiG-21. Then in 1963, there was another coup and a pro-Western government came back to power. This operation begins in 1964. Mossad puts out the word to its networks in Iraq that it is interested in speaking to pilots who have been trained on the MiG-21. Enter Ezra Zelka, codename Yusuf. Zelka, he was an Iraqi who worked for the Israelis. Zelka is working, Yusuf is working in Iraq, in Baghdad. Zelka was an Iraqi Jew with ties to Baghdad's criminal underworld. He's also a sort of unofficial head of station for Mossad in Iraq. He was really a super agent in a sense. He was the guy in charge of the operations in Iraq and running those operations because the Israelis, obviously, you know, anyone who's Israeli would be suspect straight away. Through his contacts, Zelka learned that several Iraqi pilots were due to visit San Antonio, Texas, to undergo flight training with the US Air Force. You've got to remember, yes, it was a pro-Soviet government for five years, but by 1963, it's pro-Western, and you want to build up relationships with pro-Western countries in the Middle East. Four of those pilots have trained on the MiG-21. Four potential allies, if they can only be persuaded. This led to a very, very good honey trap operation by Mossad, in which they sent four Mossad female agents over to San Antonio. All four targeted an individual Iraqi pilot who'd been trained on MiG-21. They picked them up in bars. One by one, they asked the Iraqi pilot they were targeting to defect to Israel, taking a MiG-21 with them. A trip stateside carries a lower risk to the operatives involved and carrying out the operation in the Arab world. Remember, 
Israel has already lost three officers chasing the MiG-21. Of course, the USA has, historically, been one of Israel's closest allies, so it's reasonable to imagine that the Americans would be sympathetic to the Mossad's aims. They didn't know and wouldn't, of course, have given it the go-ahead if they did know. Ah, you see, a truly special relationship between the US and Israel had only just begun to be established by the time of Operation Diamond. And generally, the American government can be sniffy about foreign regimes carrying out covert operations in their backyard. No, in this instance, Mossad thought it better to ask forgiveness than permission. Which brings us back to that bar in San Antonio, where Mossad officer Jean Pollen, a.k.a. Zainab, has seduced an unsuspecting Hamid Dahe, the first of the four pilots to be contacted by the Israelis. After their night together, she makes her pitch. And he refuses point blank. But curiously, he doesn't report the approach. Perhaps the lure of another night with Zainab overwhelms his sense of civic duty. Three days later, Dahe is out in the town again. He's in a bar one night in San Antonio, presumably due to meet her. He doesn't meet her. The lights go out. Shot rings out. And he meets his death. That's what he meets. He's lying on the floor when the lights go back on with a bullet in his head killed by an unknown assailant. American authorities are stumped, but we can make an educated guess. If you've listened to episode 71 of True Spies, Rise and Kill First, you'll know that the Mossad has a long history of using targeted assassination to achieve their goals. If Dahe had talked, he might have scuppered the entire operation. To Israel, this was unacceptable. The operational team strike the first name from their list of potential targets. You see, during the time that Dahe had spent succumbing to the deadly charms of Jean Pollen, three other agents had been seduced in a similar fashion. But now, with one of their number dead, they returned to Iraq. They were understandably spooked, but they didn't suspect the involvement of their new American paramours, who, at this stage, still hadn't revealed their true occupations. What followed was a numbers game. One by one, the Mossad operatives targeted the remaining three MiG pilots. Surely one of them would take the offer. If not, as we've heard, contingencies were in place. The first was Shakir Mahmoud Yusuf. When his holiday romance tracked him down in Baghdad, he must have been flattered by her tenacity. Shakir Mahmoud Yusuf goes back to Baghdad and she follows him. She follows him there and arranges to meet him in a hotel room. The pair rekindle their relationship, alone in the hotel room. Or so Shakir believes. What he doesn't know is in the next hotel room is Shelka and the whole thing is being recorded. She asks him whether he would do it and asks him to defect. Ezra Zelka, the Mossad's man in Baghdad, has ears everywhere. He listens as the pilot is promised riches and a safe extraction for his family. All Shakir has to do is give the Mossad one little plane. Not much to ask, surely. And he turns down the offer. It's possible that Shakir is motivated by patriotism. It's just as likely that he's scared. 
If he's caught working for the Israelis, the outcome is almost certainly death. Then again, if he doesn't. The Israelis can't risk the chance that he would go back and tell his bosses that the Israelis were trying to get this MiG-21. So Jelka walks in there and shoots him dead. No loose ends. As a player in Baghdad's criminal fraternity, Selka is anything but sentimental. One more name is stricken from the Mossad's list. Unsurprisingly, having seen two of his brothers come to untimely ends, the third pilot that the Israelis approach is more receptive. His name is Mohammed Raglob. Mohammed initially agreed, so he's initially says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And he's invited to Germany and neutral territory. So he's not going to be watched by the Iraqis there. He's invited to Germany, West Germany, as it then was. In West Germany, things are progressing nicely. The same offer is made, money and safety. But Raglar wants more, to the tune of $1 million. So he demands more money. He wants more money. And if he doesn't get it, he's going to tell his bosses in Baghdad. And that would end the chance of any chance of the Israelis obtaining a MiG-21. The problem with blackmail is that once you start, it's hard to stop. The Israelis envision a future in which Mohammed Raglob continues to make demands, dangling the MiG just out of reach, with no real guarantee that he'll ever make good on his word. No prizes for guessing how they feel about that. As you might have suspected by now, arrangements are made. Naturally, the Mossad have a tail on Raglob. When the moment is right, they plan to make his trip to Germany, tragically one way. So um, he's on a train in Germany and he's thrown out the door. And that's it, he's dead. So he's not going back to Baghdad to tell his bosses. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days, 
Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Another name is crossed out. One left. The untimely death of Mohammed Raglob leaves one final option. Munir Redfa. He's Mossad's final shot at a MiG-21. Like the other men, he'd recently made a new friend. Fortunately for him, he was open to making more. Lisa Bratt, who was the Mossad agent who'd seduced Muna Redfar, the last of the pilots still alive, invites him to Greece for a holiday. And by apparent coincidence, there is a Polish Air Force pilot in the bar that they're drinking in, and he gets into conversation with Muna Redfar. And of course, the two men, they bond the Polish pilot's name is Zev Liron. And yes, he really was an airman. In fact, he was the head of the Israeli Air Force's intelligence wing, having emigrated from Poland after surviving the Holocaust. Pilot to pilot, the two men prop up the bar for a few evenings, getting to know each other. It's a seduction of a less obvious kind, but a seduction all the same. He was a Polish Air Force officer, Zev Miron, but he is now Israeli. He's a Jew, so he's gone to Israel, he emigrated to Israel, and he's chatting away to Muna Redfar, and you've got these two guys, and they're bonding together because, obviously, Zev, you know, is working on that deliberately, and they're drinking together, and they're both Air Force pilots, so they, you know, they have an affinity with each other, they have an understanding. A few nights into the Greek excursion, Zev decides to take the relationship to the next level. So they're chatting away and they're good mates, they're getting on, you know, drunk together a couple of times now and they're well into the evening and well into their alcohol and Zev makes the pitch then. Remember, this is Israel's last chance to turn one of the Iraqi pilots. As with any proposal, they need to be as sure as humanly possible that the object of their attentions is going to say yes. Fortunately, over the course of their conversations, Zev Liron has performed an essential piece of spycraft, rooting out his target's key motivation. The chip on Munir Redfer's shoulder came from his status as a Christian in a predominantly Muslim country. He feels that his career has not been as good as some of the other guys who are Muslims. He feels like he's been treated badly. So he does actually have that key part that you need with the defector, that he's unhappy for some reason in society that he's in. So Zev Liron knows exactly which buttons to press. Look, we're looking for a MiG-21. How about you come and move to Israel, you're unhappy where you are, you know, that conversation's been had, you know, about how badly he's treated because he's a Christian and not a Muslim, how he really should be in charge of his squadron, but he isn't, and that's purely because he's a Christian. You're unhappy in Iraq. Why don't you come to Israel? If you bring a MiG-21, you will be treated really like a hero. You will live a wonderful life in Israel. You and your family will get your family out. 
and we'll make sure that you have a great life in Israel. Munaredfar buys this. He falls in with it. Well, wouldn't you? It's a strong pitch. But Liron tells Redfer to sleep on it. He does. And Redfer's first seducer, Lisa Bratt, who's taken a back seat in the proceedings so far, joins him for the night. In bed, she reveals her true identity and intimates that they could resume their relationship when Redfer and his family arrive in Israel. She produces an Israeli passport with his name on it and tickets to Tel Aviv. They leave in the morning. To Redfer, the positives seem overwhelming. The negatives? Well, who cares? Negativity kills. Munir Redfar, unsurprisingly perhaps, given what had happened to his free mates, <laughs> agrees to defect. When the lovers arrive in bustling Tel Aviv, Munir Redfar is whisked away for a round of high-profile briefings. By now, Mossad chief Maya Amit has personally stepped in to handle the operation. Amit leads the third seduction of Muni Redfer. The Iraqi is given an enthusiastic audience with the big boss, alongside the commander of the Israeli Air Force. He is made to feel like a man who carries the weight of history on his shoulders. It's intoxicating. He really is buttered up. A plan is put in motion, devilish in its simplicity. But for now, Munir Redfer has to get back to Iraq without raising suspicions. He and Lisa Bratt fly back to Greece and resume their holiday alone. From there, he flies back to Baghdad. His superiors are none the wiser about his sidebar in Tel Aviv. By now, it's the summer of 1966. And in Baghdad, Mossad's super agent, Ezra Zelka, begins the process of extracting Redfer's family. His wife, yes, of course he's married, is flown to Paris for a holiday where she's briefed. His extended family are given a less dignified exit. So the Israelis, they actually arrange it for his family and his wife's parents to go on a picnic near the Iranian border. An Israeli helicopter descends onto Iranian soil. And the Israelis get the family across the Iranian border. While his family are en route to their new home in Israel, Munir Redfer is in the cockpit of his MiG-21 in Iraq. He's about to embark on a routine high-altitude training flight. The Russian supervisors who train the MiG pilots enforce a fuel limit on flights like these to prevent exactly this kind of betrayal. However, Redfer is an experienced pilot. No supervisors necessary. He asks the ground crew to fill her up. He wants a nice, long flight. They have no idea. And the Israelis have given him a route to take. It goes via Jordan, via the Jordanian border. The MiG soars skyward, and Redfer opens up the throttle. His route skims the border with neighboring Jordan. Nothing unusual in the Iraqi Air Force's book. Knuckles white, heart racing. He banks to and fro in a zigzag pattern. Air Force controllers on the ground are lulled into a false sense of security until the crucial moment arrives. Redfer takes one last turn. He then quickly crosses the Jordanian border. The outraged voices of the air controllers fall silent as Redfer switches off his radio. By that time, the Iraqis have lost him. 
and then travels down to Ashdod in Israel, where he lands the MiG-21 after a 500-mile flight. Mission accomplished. On the ground, the Israeli Air Force set to work. The Israelis take it to pieces. They have his training manuals. They have his aircraft manual. And as with so many spy stories, the tech is hardly ever as valuable as human intelligence. They look at all the technology, but crucially, one of the most important things is that they can debrief a pilot who's been trained by the Soviet Air Force to fly a MiG-21, trained to do various tactics, trained in how to approach another aircraft, trained in the MiG-21, and every single tactic that the Egyptians and the Syrians are going to use, because they've been trained by the same people, are uncovered and logged, and the Israelis can train against them. Of course, a cover story is necessary. It wouldn't do for the Americans to discover a quadruple honey trap operation and an extrajudicial killing on their soil. Redfer dutifully takes part in a press conference where he claims that the discrimination he faced as a Christian and misgivings over the bombing of Kurds by Iraqi forces led him to contact the Israelis of his own accord. There is no mention of San Antonio, Lisa Bratt, Zev Liron, or the three other pilots who met their untimely ends during the course of the operation. By the spring of 1967, war is brewing in the region, and Redford's intel is about to come into its own. On April 7th, a skirmish erupts between Israeli Mirage jets and Syrian MiGs over the Sea of Galilee. Syrians take on Israeli Mirage jets, and it's a mistake. It's the Syrians that do it, and it's a mistake because the Mirage lose no one, and the Israelis shoot down six Syrian MiG-21s, and that reduces, seriously reduces, the strength of the Syrian Air Force, which has only got about 24, 30 aircraft anyway. The Syrian superior aircraft are no match for the Israelis. After all, it's hard to win at poker when your opponent has spent a good portion of his black budget studying your cards. And that's only the beginning. On June 10th, tensions escalate into open warfare between Israel and a powerful clutch of Arab states, including Egypt, Syria, Jordan and Iraq. It's a conflict that will come to be known as the Six-Day War. And so the tactics... The knowledge of how the MiG-21 worked, the knowledge of the tactics that the Syrians and Egyptian pilots would use is of enormous assistance to the Israeli Air Force when it comes to the Six-Day War because in the immediate clashes at the beginning in the air, they completely dominate the Egyptian and Syrian MiG-21s and gain complete control of the air, which ensures that the Israelis win within six days, less than a week, which was the prediction of the Mossad boss when he went to Washington before the war. He said it would be over within a week. Of course, that's not the whole story. A series of preemptive strikes on Egyptian bases also dealt heavy blows to enemy air power. But in the many air-to-air engagements that followed, MiG pilots were denied an easy victory, time and time again. The Six-Day War was won in the air. It's not hyperbole to suggest 
that a different outcome would have produced a radically different Middle East to the one we know today. At this early stage in its history, Israel's survival was by no means assured. And at the heart of that historic victory for Israel was one pilot, the one who survived anyway, Munir Redfer. It's interesting that he was extraordinarily highly regarded because his family and he get to Israel eventually and they don't settle, they can't settle. The Israelis moved them to a Western European country. 20 years later, Redford died in Europe from a heart attack. And when he dies, Mossad really do have a little celebration in memory of him, celebrating his life and celebrating what he did. And they really did take to him. They really thought he was a great guy. Whether the cause of his heart attack was good living or residual stress remains unclear. If we've learned anything in this episode, it's that honey trap operations are anything but soft espionage. Like life, they can be nasty, brutish and short. But where Operation Diamond had an immediate and urgent objective, some honey traps burn more slowly. In the next episode of this anthology, we'll meet a spy who embedded herself in the enemy's society and waited patiently for the right target to present himself. From what people said, she could tell you the weather and make it seem like a come on. In the exclusive nightclubs of New York and London, Cash is in ready supply. With cash comes power. And with power, secrets. Between 2005 and 2010, Russian spy Anna Chapman used her superhuman interpersonal skills and nightlife connections to get close to some of the Western world's highest rollers. Lawyers, bankers, oligarchs, even princes. I'm Vanessa Kirby, Join us next time for a glamorous glimpse into the life and times of a spy sensation. Or if you're a subscriber to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts, there's no need to wait. You can listen to it right now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.